Amen. We're going to be in Revelation 2 and 3 this morning. If you've got a Bible, you're going to want to get over there. Uh, When I was in college, I visited a friend's family property in South Texas around the El Campo, Wharton type of area. We went down there with his dad and a few friends and we played paintball and just kind of hung around on their land and had a great time. Uh, And in the evening, after we came back into the house, we started exploring this house that had been in my friend's family for generations, uh, for many generations. In the house, we found a shoebox, and when we opened the shoebox, the shoebox was filled with old letters, uh, letters that clearly dated back uh, well before our time. As we began to read the letters, we realized that the letters dated back to the late 1800s, around the 1880s or 1890s. What we had found was a treasure trove of old letters that his great-great-grandfather had written to his great-great-grandmother while they were dating, while they were courting. And of course, in that era, there was no telephone, there was no texting, there was no email. So if they were separated for a period of time, they had to write letters. And so these letters, uh, although they were hard to read because his handwriting wasn't something we were accustomed to, these letters contained all of these expressions of, of love and devotion as, as well as sort of mundane matters of what he was doing day to day. And so... Uh, We read these letters with deep interest, a couple of college dudes, uh, but we thought, you know, maybe this guy from a previous generation has something that we can learn about how to woo a woman, because we were single, and we, we did not yet have ladies, but it was clear that whatever he did worked, because I was sitting there with his great, great grandson. So we read these letters with interest. I think eventually his father took them and and transcribed them, typed them up into a computer uh, and scanned them so that they could be preserved for posterity. But as I read them, I thought, man, what what an interesting time to think back on, uh, a time before there were phones, before there was any other means of communication. If you wanted to express your love and your concern to somebody who was far away that wasn't in your presence, you would write a letter. Uh, In fact, when I first started college, email was still new enough that I wrote letters to my friends. Some of you remember those days. Some of you remember envelopes and stamps and mailboxes and letters and and those types of things. That was how we communicated. And if you wanted to write a letter to somebody and express to them the things that were important to you about that person or just in life, you took your time. You wrote it carefully. You thought about every word, especially if it was a letter that had a deep meaning to you, a letter where you really wanted to express your heart. I can remember writing some letters in college where I would write a line and think, no, that's not right. And so I would grab what was called whiteout, and I would white out a sentence and go back and rewrite it and labor over that letter. When somebody writes a letter from their heart, on, pen with, on paper with ink. You wanna pay attention to what they're writing. The reason I share that this morning is Revelation chapters two and three. We have seven letters written from Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, risen from the dead, the powerful and risen Jesus that John saw in chapter one that we talked about last week. We have seven letters written from Jesus to the churches of the first century. 
And in these seven letters, Jesus expresses his heart, his desires for them, his approval of them in some ways, and his warnings of them in other ways, and his promises to them if they will stand firm in the faith. And so over the course of these seven letters, we see Jesus writing to his people, people like us. We talked about this last week. The book of Revelation was written to people like us who were trying to figure out how do I follow Jesus faithfully when I live in a world and in a culture that is filled with idolatry and immorality and hostility to Jesus? How do I persevere in the faith? And so in Revelation 2 and 3, we see Jesus telling the Apostle John, I want you to write down these letters to these seven churches that are sprinkled throughout Asia Minor. We're gonna see a map of them in a moment. Uh, They're sprinkled throughout modern day Turkey. I want you to write some letters to these seven churches to tell them who I am and what I want from them and what I'm promising to them. Let me again place Revelation two and three in context. And I wanna say this, we're gonna cover a lot of ground this morning. My wife asked me this week, which of the seven letters are you going through this week? I said, all of them. And the reason is this, because uh, in order to progress through the book of Revelation this semester, there's a couple of sections we're going to take as a summary. This is one of them. We're going to cover a lot of ground, but I want, before we dive into any of these letters, to put them in their broader context. You remember last week, we said in Revelation 1.19, Jesus gives us a basic outline of the book of Revelation. You remember, he says, John... I want you to write first the things that you have seen. That was chapter one. He sees the risen Jesus who is exalted with, remember, a a sword coming from his mouth and his, his feet are shiny and his face is glowing and his hair is white as snow. He sees the exalted and risen Jesus. So that's the things he's seen. Then he says, I want you to write the things that are. That's Revelation two and three. He says, I want you to write down the condition and my commands to the churches in this era, in this day and age. And then he says, I want you to write the things that will take place after these things. That's where we're going to go starting next week. That's basically the rest of the book, chapters 4 through 22. So what we see is John writes these letters to these seven churches. And and to frame, again, where we are, if you were here two weeks ago, we talked about an overview of end times, of eschatology. And we kind of walked through everything that uh, the scripture says is about to happen. And you remember, one of the things we said was that the rapture of the church right here, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that's the next event on God's prophetic timeline. We don't know when it's going to happen, but it is coming. And in the meanwhile, we are in this era at the beginning of this graph called the church age, where men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are hearing about Jesus, are coming to know Jesus. And we talked about how Jesus is waiting to return. We saw this from Peter's writings. Jesus is waiting to return until the maximum number of people have the opportunity to hear about Jesus. He's not slow, but he's patient not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So in the meanwhile, we're in this era where we are coming to know Jesus, hearing about the gospel, serving him and proclaiming him and worshiping him. So John writes these seven letters by Jesus' command to churches like us who are post-resurrection and ascension, but pre-rapture. 
We're in this undetermined amount of time before Jesus comes back. There are seven churches that John writes to. They're all in Asia Minor. I don't know how well you can see the green circles here, uh, but, but I'll show you. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So the seven letters go in kind of a circle around uh, this western part of Asia Minor, what we now know as Turkey. John is in exile on the Isle of Patmos, which is right over here off the west coast of Asia Minor. So to, to orient you, here's Greece over here. Here's Turkey, Asia Minor over here. All of these churches are here. Now, I point this out to say there's seven churches. Uh, and as you know, as you move through the book of Revelation, seven is an important number. It's a number of completion, a number of fullness. But seven was not all of the churches that would have existed in the first century. There were other churches. In fact, you can see Colossae's on that map. There was a church in Colossae. We know there were churches in Greece, like in Thessalonica and in Athens. So this is not all the churches that exist. This is seven representative churches. So Jesus says, John, I want you to write letters to these seven churches as representative churches where we're gonna talk about all the struggles and challenges that churches face. Some people believe that these churches actually are chronological, that each one of them, starting with Ephesus, details a different era in church history, going from uh, the first and second century all the way up to the present time where we would have the, the book of, uh, or the letter to Laodicea. I don't personally hold that view. Instead, what I think is going on is that these churches have all of the same struggles and sins and pressures that people like us face. And so these are letters written to churches like ours to say, here are the things you're gonna struggle with. You're gonna face pressure to deny the name of Jesus. You're gonna face pressure to mix false worship and idolatry in with your worship of Jesus. You're gonna face pressure to tolerate immorality in your midst, sexual immorality in your midst. You're gonna face the pressure just to kind of lose your focus and your heart for Jesus. And all of these letters say in the midst of that type of pressure and challenge and difficulty, I'm calling you to persevere. So that all of these letters are gonna have the same basic emphasis. And we're gonna go through them in a bit more detail. But all of these letters, Jesus tells us, I want you to turn away from your sin. Turn away from the sins of your age, whatever those may be, and cling to the promises of Jesus. Turn away from the sins of your age and cling to the promises of Jesus. Again, when you're facing trial, persecution, temptation, what you're gonna be tempted to do is to say, I'm just gonna go along to get along. I'm just gonna go along to get along. I'm not gonna make waves. I'm not going to, to make waves or draw lines regarding what I will or won't do at the office, in my relationships, or even in the church. I'm just gonna go along to get along to avoid the economic and social and relational and maybe even legal consequences of standing firm in Jesus. What Jesus does in all of these letters, he said, no, 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 I want you to understand the rewards of sticking with Jesus are greater than the temporary rewards of sin and complacency and idolatry. Turn away from the sins of the age and cling to his promises. Now what's amazing, every single one of the letters has the same format. 
They all follow the same basic flow with a few variations. So I want us, if you're in Revelation 2, I'm going to read the letter to Ephesus, the first one, verses 1 through 7, and I want to show you the the format that each of these letters takes, starting in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. So all of them begin with an address like that. John, I want you to write this letter to the angel over this church. So John would write the letter to the angel who would presumably then deliver it to the church. And then there's a description of Jesus in every one. Here in Ephesus, it is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. What I want you to notice, every description in all of the letters, we're going to look at all of them, every single description is drawn from John's vision of Jesus in chapter 1. So John sees Jesus holding uh, these stars in his hand and walking among the lampstands. So Jesus says, I am the one who holds the stars and walks among the lampstands. Every single one of the descriptions is drawn from chapter one. That's gonna be significant in a moment. Then all of them have, or most of them, have some sort of commendation, something you're doing well as a church. So verse two, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So five of the seven letters have this kind of commendation. All of the commendations deal with the perseverance of the church the endurance of the church. There are two letters, uh, the letter to Sardis and the letter to Laodicea, have nothing good. Jesus has nothing good to say about those churches. That should be sobering, that there are churches that he dives right into warning and exhortation. But five of the seven, he says, hey, it's really great that you are keeping the faith, that you are avoiding heresy, just that you're continuing to believe in Jesus in this hostile age. I wanna commend you for that. And then most of the letters have something like this uh, that we see in chapter four. But, there's always a but. I have this against you. In some of them he says, I have a few things against you. Here in Ephesus, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent. All of the ones that have a condemnation have a warning to repent. Repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. And then he gives one more commendation. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We'll talk more about them in just a minute. They are not related to St. Nicholas or Santa Claus in any way. Although some people think they are. But he says, okay, here's something you're doing well, here's something you're doing not so well, and I'm calling you to repent, to turn around. And there's usually a warning. In this case, he says, I'm gonna remove your lampstand. What are the lampstands? Those are the churches themselves. I will take your church away. Your church will die if you don't turn around. So most of them, there are two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, that have no warning or condemnation. There are two churches that everything seems to be going well. There are two churches that everything seems to be going poorly. And then there are three churches that are a mixture of both. And then all of them end with saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. They all have a promise for overcomers. Here it is, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise 
of God. So there, there's this imagery drawn often from Isaiah. Remember Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Daniel, but also we're going to see some of this imagery come back at the end of the book of Revelation. Promises about what is to come for those who overcome, which we'll talk about a little bit more as we get throughout the rest of the, the morning. All right, so they all follow that same basic flow. But again, the essence of them is this. Jesus is saying, I want, you to, I want you to avoid the sins of your age, the temptations of your age. Avoid mixing those in with your worship and your obedience to Jesus, but instead cling to the eternal and perfect promises of Jesus, because following Jesus is always going to result in greater reward now and in eternity than the temporary pleasures of sin. That's the essence of all these letters. I want to walk through then. There's four primary things in these letters that Jesus says to his people, to the church, people like you and me. What does Jesus want to say? If Jesus were here this morning uh, writing us a letter, what are the things that he would want to say to the church? What does Jesus want to say to the church? First and foremost, he says this, I am in control. I am in control. As I mentioned before, Every one of these letters begins with a description of Jesus. All of the descriptions are drawn from John's vision of Jesus in chapter one. So Jesus gives a different name for himself. So think for us about like the president of the United States, not, not the, the, the individual currently holding the office. Uh, that's not where we're going this morning. But instead, the, the office of the president, he's called the president. But he's also called the commander-in-chief or the chief executive, or he might be called a, a speech maker or the head of his political party, or he might be identified with the Oval Office or the White House. So you got one guy that has a lot of different titles, all of which are meant to indicate that he's the guy where the buck is supposed to stop. And we often think about him in our culture that way. If the economy is struggling, if there's a foreign threat, whatever, we go, we need the commander in chief. We need the chief executive to issue some economic policies, whatever. We look to this person to resolve the challenges that we're facing. Here we have Jesus, the son of God, the savior of the world, in every single one of these letters, addressing people who are struggling with temptation and sin and persecution. He describes himself in a different way, a way that indicates his power and his authority over the universe. I wanna show you these descriptions. We read verse one a minute ago. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus says, I'm in charge of the churches the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. He writes this to the church in Smyrna that is facing the possibility of martyrdom. And he reminds them, I've overcome death, so you don't need to worry about death. 2.12, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. 2.18, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. Both of those, those are written to the churches of Pergamum and Thyatira, Thyatira both of whom had idolatry and sexual immorality mixed in with their worship and within their congregation. Both of these images are about Jesus the judge, Jesus the fiery one, Jesus the powerful one. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Three, seven, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. I love that one written to the church of Philadelphia. 
a church facing persecution, but Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my new Jerusalem, in my city. That's his promise to them. And he says, I hold the key to death and to Hades and to eternal life. And then the, the letter to the Laodiceans, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation, the one who made it all, who controls it all, who everything he says is true. I want you to listen. So Jesus begins and he says, I'm in charge. Why do you, you need to know that Jesus is in charge before he tells you what he wants you to do? Because why would I trust what he's asking me to do if I don't understand who he is? Jesus says, I want you to know who I am. So he, he says, hey, you look outside the walls of your church and you see a world, a society that is steeped in sin, and hostility, and, and, and a lack of faith in God, and you're, you're, you're tempted to, to blend in. Because maybe you're afraid, you don't wanna make waves, you wanna go along, to get along, to avoid the struggle and the tension that comes from standing up for Jesus. He says, I just wanna remind you who I am. If I could overcome death, I can handle this. If I hold the churches in my hands and I walk amongst you and I am everywhere all at once, then don't think that I don't see what's happening in the world. Jesus reminds them I'm in control. We need to remember he's in control. One of the things that struck me as I read these letters is that we live in an era where uh, the word unprecedented has become very natural for people to use, not only with regard to the pandemic, for example, but people use it all the time. These are times like nobody has ever seen before. And often that's simply because we lack historical context. The church of the first century faced all the pressures that we face today and then some. Some of them were being imprisoned or killed for their faith in Jesus. First under Nero, then under Domitian. They faced pressures, and we'll see this in a moment, to, to just worship the emperor just a little bit so it wouldn't cost them economically to stand on Jesus alone. They faced pressure to ignore sexual immorality in the midst of the church because to push back against the sexual mores of their culture I don't know if any of this sounds familiar, would result in anger, isolation, and maybe even consequences economically and personally. So Jesus says, I want you to understand right away, I am in control. I am in control. Remember who I am. And then again, as I said, in five of the letters, he goes on and he says, as you are walking with me, I want you to see this, I see your faithfulness. I see your faithfulness. Let me, let me show you. We read in uh, verses two and three in the book of Ephesus how he commends their perseverance. To the letter to, the, to Smyrma in 2.9, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. That is, they were, they were materially poor, but you are rich. You're spiritually rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. In other words, you're doing good, you're walking well. Even though you're suffering, you're walking with me. To the, to the church in Pergamum, 
Drop down verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Anipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. We don't have great historical data on who Antipas was, but it seems like there were people in Pergamum who were being killed for their faith. And he says, you are keeping the faith. Good job. To the church in Thyatira, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. They're doing well in certain areas. To Philadelphia, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. So over and over again, he says, hey, I want you to understand, I see your faithfulness. Every single one of us wants to know that when we are trying and serving, and being faithful, and working hard. We want to know that we're seen. We want to know that somebody notices. Uh, If you are married, I'm going to guess at some point in your house, you have done a chore when your spouse has been gone. You wash the dishes, you do the laundry, you clean the house, and when they come home, you just wait to see if you're noticed. Anticipating praise and joy, perhaps perhaps a medal, you know, for, for what you have done. Some of you, I know, your spouse comes in and maybe you go, do you notice anything? And you just wait. And if you're on the receiving end of that, you begin to sweat. You're like, haircut? What? I, I don't, like, what, what is it? I don't know. And you, you may say, hey, do you like having clean clothes? Have you noticed that the counter is free of debris. Have you noticed, have you ever paid attention to how shiny it is? That was me, I did that, right? We wanna be noticed, we wanna be recognized, we wanna be seen. That's not a wrong desire. But what we see in these letters is that Jesus says, I want you to know that I see you. The greatest commendation we could receive is for Jesus Christ to say, You stood firm, you kept going, you kept pursuing me, even in the face of pressure. The greatest words we could hear from our Savior that we long to hear one day is well done, good and faithful servant. And so in five of these seven letters, Jesus says to these churches, I see what you're doing, your work and your faithfulness and your obedience to me in the midst of a hostile world, it's not unnoticed, it's not unseen. And the day will come, not only for the church, but for all of humanity, when the words of Jesus and the praise of Jesus will matter more than anything else. So he says, I wanna give you that now. In the areas you're doing well, hey, you're avoiding false doctrine, way to go. You are avoiding the teachings of heretics who would mix political idolatry or religious idolatry or immorality with the church. You're avoiding that. Good job. And he commends these churches to remind them that the greatest praise you can receive always is going to come from the mouth of your Savior, Jesus Christ. So he says, I see you. I see your faithfulness. I see your faithfulness. I I remember many, many years ago when I was in college, a pastor telling me, by the time you're 20 years down the line, 
you're in your 40s, you're in your 50s. He said, you'll be amazed that you will see friends who are fervent in their faith today who are gonna turn around and walk away. Because we do not live in a world that rewards service and faithfulness to Jesus over the long haul. And life is hard and there is trial both in our own lives and there is also often external trial and difficulty and persecution and so people walk away. And so to those who are standing firm, Jesus says, I see you, I know. I know what you're walking through and I commend you. I see your faithfulness. And then he goes on in five of the seven letters and he says, don't give in. Don't give in to the sins of your age. Don't give in to the temptations of your age. I wanna show you again, chapter two, verse four. He says, but I have this against you, Ephesus, that you have left your first love. Chapter two, verse 14, to Pergamum. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. This is a serious warning. Thyatira, verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds, and I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. The church in Sardis, wake up. Strengthen the things that remain. He begins by saying, I know your deeds. You have a name, you're alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Remember, verse three, what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. To Laodicea, verse 15, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So he moves from commendation to warning. Some of you, if you've ever taken a management class, they might have told you about uh, the rebuke sandwich. Right, so if you say, uh, I need to talk with somebody about something that they're doing wrong, you always begin with encouragement. You begin with what they're doing right. So you might say to somebody, you're a really, really good cook, and 95% of the food you make is fantastic. And then you move to the rebuke right in the middle of the sandwich. But 5% of what you make has salmonella. Right, and it's that 5% we really need to shore up, we need to work on, because you're hurting people. But keep going, I know you're gonna do better. That's the other piece of bread. You got this, you can change this. Jesus invented that. He begins and he says, good job, stand firm. But I got a few things you need to know. A few things that are, gonna, that are gonna kill your effectiveness, that are gonna kill your witness, that are gonna lead to discipline and judgment from God in your midst. 
Like I say, there's only two letters that do not have these kinds of warnings. One is the the letter to Smyrna, and the other is Philadelphia. I want to summarize this morning the issues that Jesus addresses. There's really uh, three primary concerns in all of these letters. First of all, there is idolatry and immorality. That's the first two. And then there is complacency. And I'm going to summarize them in this way. We begin the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira. We don't know exactly what was going on, but it seems that what was going on was that there was, there was heresy in their midst. As I mentioned a couple of times, Jesus refers to the heresy of the Nicolaitans. Whoever those people were has ultimately been lost to history. We don't know exactly what they taught, but there are some hints within the passage. There's two other biblical references, Old Testament references, in these two churches that give us a hint. One is the, the teachings of Balaam, son of Balak. You may remember Balaam from the Old Testament, from the book of Numbers. <coughs> Excuse me. Balaam was the guy, most people know him as the guy whose donkey talked. Right, the only person in the Bible who was so thick-headed that God had to get his donkey to tell him, hey, change your course. So he's beating this donkey because the donkey sees the angel of the Lord. Here's what's happened with Balaam. Balaam was hired by the king of Moab to curse the people of Israel. But God won't let him do it. And as they're traveling along, the angel of the Lord is standing with a sword in front of the donkey, and uh, Balaam can't see it, but the donkey can. And so the donkey starts, he's sitting down, the donkey's like, no thank you. Right? And so Balaam hits him, he hits the donkey. Donkey gets up and starts walking, and again sits down. Balaam hits the donkey, gets up, starts walking, sits down. Third time, Balaam's frustrated, and the donkey turns and goes, why are you hitting me? And there's this great dialogue. He's like, haven't I always been a good donkey? It says that. Go read the text. He's like, have I not always been a reliable good donkey? And Balaam's like, yeah, I guess so. (laughs) And he goes, then why would I do this unless there was some good reason? The angel of the Lord is in your path because God will not let you curse these people. Balaam goes anyway, and he tries to curse the people of God, and God won't let him. He blesses them instead. That's all that can come out of his mouth. So he can't curse him. So here's what Balaam does instead. He convinces the women of Moab to entice and seduce the men of Israel with idolatry and sexual immorality and food. And they enter into their midst and they they make the men of Israel a feast and they seduce them and they get them to worship idols and they weaken their effectiveness and their trust in God. If I can't attack them, I'll just seduce them. I'll just draw them away from Jesus. It seems that in the first century church, there were some, and I think the Nicolaitans are probably some kind of heresy or cult that did this. They said, hey, you can believe in Jesus, but you can still worship the emperor a little bit because the trade guilds required emperor worship. If you wanted to be economically prosperous, you had to align with the emperor. You had to align with the worship of the Greek and Roman gods to some extent, or you'd be kicked out. And their worship involved sexual immorality as well as idolatry. I think that's also behind the reference to Jezebel in the letter to Thyatira. Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab, 
was idolatrous and sexually immoral and led the people of Israel into idolatry. And I think what's going on here in these first century churches is they've just begun to compromise, to tolerate, to say, let's go along to get along. And it might cost me at the office to refuse to celebrate or promote the immorality of my culture. It might cost me. And so there were people whispering in their ear that said, it's, it's all right. Just go along to get along. It's, it's okay if you, have to, if you have to compromise on your love for Jesus just a little bit in order to align with the leader of our country, the emperor. It's okay if you have to compromise what Jesus has told you to do just a little bit sexually or let somebody in the doors who is living in sexual immorality and let them be a leader even in your church. Go along to get along. Jesus says, I I caution you as a church that's a road to discipline and judgment. The other primary danger that we see is simply complacency. In Ephesus, they've, they've left their first love. They're, they're, they're doctrinally pure, but their hearts are cold. Maybe they aren't singing in worship to Jesus with the same fervor they once did. They're not praying as they once did. They're not engaged in his word as they once did. They've left their first love. Sardis is a, is a hypocritical church. They have a reputation for being fantastic. The people are coming. The worship is booming. The hands are raised. But behind the scenes, they're dead. They're not serving the Lord. They're not caring for their community. They're not engaging in evangelism, whatever it may be. And then, of course, Laodicea is the one that's just, they're kind of mad about Jesus says you're lukewarm. The water in Laodicea, by the way, was well known for being lukewarm and and filled with sulfurous minerals. It tasted nasty. And so if you would drink it, they had a real water crisis. So if you uh, tried to drink their water from their aqueduct, you would spit it out. That's the imagery Jesus portrays. What I find interesting is the harshest condemnations are reserved for complacency, not so much for idolatry and immorality. And so in all of these, he says, here's here's what I'm calling you to do. I want you to turn away from the sins of your culture. Don't even tolerate them. Maybe we we tolerate them by, by what we look at or watch online or read. Maybe we tolerate them because, again, maybe some of us, we just, we say, I'm going to go along to get along. And even if I've got a, a brother or sister in Christ who is engaged in immorality or adultery or, or, or homosexual sins or whatever it may be, I just say, I'm going to go along to get along. I don't want to offend, so I won't speak up. Maybe I'll even celebrate what God condemns. And so to these churches, he says, don't give in to the sins of your age. Or maybe it is you're doctrinally pure. You, you can quote the Bible. And as I started uh, telling the story of Balaam and Balak, you're like, yep, I know where that is. I've got it memorized. The whole story of the donkey, I got it down. But your heart's cold. 
And Jesus says, what I'm calling you toward is a renewed passion and fire and desire to walk with me, to stick it out. And we're gonna find the reason here at the end of each letter. As Jesus says, don't give in to sin. And what I want you to do is remember my promises. Every letter ends with a promise to those who overcome, to those who overcome. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. This is probably a mark of inclusion in the wedding feast of the Lamb. He who overcomes and keeps my deeds to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. All of these promises to him who overcomes, and here's here's what I believe is happening. I don't think that these promises, although some people do, I don't think these promises are for a special group of Christians who happens to do particularly well in following Jesus. I think these overcomer promises instead are reminders They're reminders of what Jesus has promised his people, that the day is coming when those who know Jesus will participate in his kingdom forever and ever. The day is coming when you will overcome death and rise from the dead. So even if you are right now facing persecution and temptation and this desire to go along, to get along, even as you're facing that, you can trust that Jesus is coming back. Everything that's about to happen in chapters 4 to 22 is going to happen. You can take it to the bank. And so Jesus says, I just want to remind you, as you're wavering and you're walking through this world and your heart is growing tired and cold and you say, man, it's hard to keep praying. It's hard to keep trusting. It's hard to keep following Jesus. It's hard to always push away from the sins of this age. It's hard. Jesus says, I want you to remember the day is coming when you'll overcome with me. And everybody who knows me will be glad they stuck with me because the greatest reward you could hear is well done, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't know if anybody in here is an Aggie fan, but if you are, you know in your soul that the day is coming when we will win that national championship. You know it's coming. And yet you've waited in trial and tribulation, <laughs> hardship and difficulty. Some of, you, some of you, your faith has wavered. Years ago, I ran into a guy after a particularly rough season and he said, I'm done, I'm out, I'm not buying any more tickets, I'm not watching, I've done it for 40 years, I'm done. And I was like, well, that's, that's your decision, but those of us who stick with them to the end, We're gonna know in our hearts that we were faithful, right? That's what Jesus says to these churches. It's gonna be worth it to persevere. It's gonna be worth it to stick it out. I wanna hear well done, good and faithful servant. I wanna receive the rewards from Jesus that he has promised. 
Everybody who knows him can know that you have eternal life. If you believe Jesus died and rose again, you can know that you have eternal life that cannot be shaken. And so what we long for is for him to greet us and say, well done. I know your deeds. I see your perseverance. I saw how you turned away from the sins of your age and you clung to my promises. Well done. We're going to celebrate communion as we close this morning. And uh, the, the communion elements uh, ought to be in the seat in front of you uh, nearby. As you grab them, here's the, here's the question then that I want us to ask ourselves in light of what we just read. If Jesus were to write you a letter, what would it say? If you're honest, maybe the letter would, would have some commendation, but also some warning, some call to repentance. Maybe there are places in your life, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in the world around you where you know you're going along to get along. Places where you know you're compromising. Places where your heart is growing cold. As we, as we prepare to take communion then, I wanna offer a, a couple of quick thoughts. If you know Jesus Christ, you can know that you have eternal life. If you've trusted in his death and resurrection, you know you have eternal life. Everybody who knows that is welcome to partake of communion with us today. If you don't yet know him, the message really of the entire scripture, but of, of revelation as well, is that eternal life and hope for the future is found only in Jesus. If you trust in him alone, you can know that you have eternal life. So instead of partaking of the elements, it may be you say that the letter Jesus would write to me is simply believe in me, trust in me. Maybe that you know him. And there are things in your heart and in your life that he's calling you, I want you to repent. I want you to turn around from sin and trust in my promises again. What would that letter say? Take a moment of, of quiet as we prepare to take the elements.